a couple things for you first. Um, one kind of a, uh, I guess, a practical, a practical thing. A lot of people have wondered, uh, a common question has been, what's going to happen with preaching and um, what's the story on that? And so just uh, want to give you a, a few things uh, so you know some things that are happening. Uh, the general plan right now is that uh, I'm going to be preaching on the first Sunday of the month, and then Jeremy will be preaching on the second Sunday of the month, uh, potentially a guest on the third, and then another member of the pastoral team who wants to do preaching will be on the fourth Sunday of the month. So that's kind of what you can expect from a, from a preaching standpoint. That's, uh, obviously, that plan can be adjusted as, as we need to, but that's where we're headed. Um, I, I'm confident that what you can expect is, uh, is the word explained to the best of our ability. And so that's why, that's what we're here for, is to, is to hear the word. And we're going um, to continue that. And that's, that's the way that um, we think we're going to end up doing it. Okay? So that's our, that's our functional detail for this morning. I want to turn our attention to Job. And uh, as we do that, uh, I am... I'm keenly aware of our need for grace this morning, and I know I need grace too. So will you pray with me one more time as we, um, before we get into our study of Job? Father, I believe in your Holy Spirit. I believe in his presence. I believe in his power. I believe in his activity. Not just in my heart, uh, but in the heart of every believer here in this room. And so, because you say we can come to you as Father and you'll give us good gifts, I ask you to give us uh, your Spirit's power and comforting presence, his help. You said he's a helper, and we need his help this morning. We know it, and so we ask for it, um, because Jesus deserves it. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be in Job chapter number one, and um, have one, one big idea for you this morning And that is, in every trial, God is in control and God is good. In every trial, God is in control and God is good. Before we get to the actual text, just a couple of preliminary thoughts. Uh, Number one, I realize that none of us have ever suffered as Job suffers. You already, I know you're familiar with the story of Job. You you know the suffering that he went through. And I'm aware that none of us have been through suffering to, to that extent. There might be some general parallels that we have. Um, We have suffering. We have times that are hard for us, as Job has a time that was hard for him. I think another parallel is that we we understand suffering that happens for a reason or for a cause, right? I mean, we when we see suffering that happens, maybe because we did something foolish, we say that's an understandable suffering. Um, When we see even people um, that we love or unbelievers in the world suffering because of their sin, we say, well, that kind of makes sense when you suffer for for sin or suffer for unrighteousness sake. But I think like Job, it's hard for us to trust God when we don't necessarily see the why of suffering, right? That's the hardest kind of suffering is the suffering that we go, I'm not really sure where this is coming from and I'm not sure why this is in my life. The remarkable thing about Job is that Job never finds out about God's interaction with Satan that we're going to read here in this very first chapter. Job never gets that information, and yet he stands as a model for us as someone who, in great suffering, still trusts God. I think another parallel for us is that what we're about to see in Job chapter 1 is Job's initial reaction to suffering. So the entire book of Job is a lesson to us. What we're going to see in this morning, just because of limited time, we're only going to see one initial response. 
And in many ways, as a church, we're in our initial response to troubling news, right? So this is not the end of the story, but we're on the front end of troubling news. And so I think Job is instructive to us on how he responds initially to trial and to suffering. What I do think is that God is the same answer for us this morning as he was for Job. So none of us may have suffered to the extent that Job has, but the same answer is the answer for us this morning to encourage our hearts, um, to focus our attention. And that's, that's desperately what I want for you. I, I want to I be able to say, look to who God is. God is the same answer for us as he was for Job. And so if this morning you're heart sick for any number of reasons, you're facing suffering from any number of angles, I think that this is the best word that I can give you today. I think this is, this is not the only word to give you, but I think the best word to give you is that God is in control and God is good. There are other things that can be said and they, and they should be said, but for today, I think our knowledge of God needs to anchor our emotions and our thoughts and even our reactions to life around us. I think something happens to us when we get hurt. Um, we tend to just focus on the ouch, all right? So when there's pain, we just start thinking about the ouch. Uh, I remember one time in high school, I think I was a junior, senior, and uh, we had gym class, and uh, I was just messing around in gym class, just kind of a, a dumb old thing. It was the middle of track season, and uh, I ran hurdles in high school, and uh, we were just goofing around, and I jumped up for a ball, and I landed on a, one of those orange safety cones, you know, like real tall ones, and I just totally rolled my ankle. And it's probably the most painful injury I'd ever have. So I'm laying on the gym floor, and I'm holding my ankle, and I'm, I'm like, crying in front of all of my friends, you know, like, we're all there, and they're all at me, and I'm just, like, bawling over this painful ankle. And that's all I can think about is this hurts. And uh, it wasn't until later that I found out one of my friends came to me, and he said, uh, did, you, did you know that the track coach came in? Because he heard you'd been hurt. And he came in, and, you know, he had his arm on your back, and he wanted to see how bad it was, and he wanted to see what had happened to me, it wasn't that I was the star hurdler, it was that I was the only hurdler. So anyway, um, <laughs> so they said, did you know that he was there? And I said, I had, I had no idea. I never heard him say a word to me. Uh, in the moment, I'm just sitting there going, ouch, like this, this hurts, and I'm not aware of anything else around me, all right? What I think Job does for us this morning is he lifts us from the ouch, and he says, we, need a, we can look somewhere else for a more sure foundation, because our tendency is just to go, ouch, this hurts. And Job says, turn your eyes somewhere else besides the ouch and, and look at God who is in control and look at God who is good. Second preliminary thing for you this morning is that I realize that some of you, especially in comparison to me, are experts in suffering. I, I realize that, that many of you have endured a level of suffering that I have never even approached. I, I haven't even come close to the kind of suffering that you've gone through. And you teach all of us as a church these two truths. God is in control and God is good. You teach that with your life. You teach that with your ongoing confidence in God. And I'm grateful for you. It's just that I'm the one that's up here speaking this morning. And, and I just, I, I know that those of you who have gone through suffering have found these two things to be true. You've, you've found it to be true that God is in control and that God is good. And so what we're going to do this morning in Job is not to tell you something that you don't know. Uh, I'm not trying to teach you something that you hadn't considered and, oh, I hadn't even thought of that. Uh, what I would like to do is just remind you of what Job tells us to be true. I just want to encourage your hearts today um, to, to keep coming back to not the ouch, but the God 
who is in control and who is good. The, the book of Job is not, is not an attempt to tell us why we suffer. And isn't that often what we want to know? We want to know why is this going on? Job doesn't even try to do that. Instead, Job is concerned about addressing how we respond. And so the book of Job shows us who is in control and who isn't in control. It tells us how to help people who are suffering, and it shows us how not to help people who are suffering. It shows us how to respond, and it shows us how not to respond. One commentator summed it up like this. Contentment in our relationship with God amid any circumstances is rooted not in understanding everything God does, but in trusting what he says he is like. Okay, so our, our contentment in how we, how we are related to God isn't found in, in our circumstances. And it's not even in our understanding of what God's doing, but it's in our trust of who he really is. Kind of the, the overarching theme of wisdom, which Job is a wisdom book, one of the overarching themes that is in the wisdom of the Old Testament is that satisfaction in life is found not in any component of the creation, but satisfaction in life is found in the creator itself. All right? So for instance, the book of Ecclesiastes shows us that satisfaction is not found in having lots of things. Solomon tries everything there is under the sun, and he comes up empty and dry. But he finds that contentment is actually found in our creator. Well, Job does the same thing for us, only Job doesn't find out that contentment is in the creator through having lots of things. He finds out that by suffering and by having things removed from him. And so, because I think it's true that our contentment needs to be in the creator itself, I, I want to try to help you and help us all turn our attention to the creator himself. One person has summed it up like this. The message of Job and how we relate to God, there's three messages. One, reverent worship, because he's worthy of reverent worship. Two, confident faith, because God has spoken. And three, trusting submission because God is both sovereign and good. And it's that last part, the sovereign and good, that I think is the focus of Job chapter 1. And so let's, let's consider this together. We're going to get into Job chapter 1 here. And the first thing we're going to see that takes up the bulk of the chapter is really the surprising backstory of Job. All right, the surprising backstory of what's going on. We're going to meet Job in verses 1 through 6. So let's read this together. Job 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did continually. All right, this is the backstory of the person Job. If we were to summarize who is Job, I think we could, we could summarize the man as someone who is genuinely godly and fabulously rich. All right, that's Job. He's godly through and through, and he has immense wealth. Uh, notice that, it, that what Scripture says about him, right, this is not his perception of himself. The Bible tells us that Job was blameless and upright. He feared God and he turned away from evil. Blameless doesn't mean that he never did a sin. It just means that his, his character was intact. It, there, there wasn't something you could accuse him of. Uh, he, was, he was overall blameless. It says he's upright. In other words, morally, he was the right kind of person. He was somebody who feared God. 
speaking of wisdom literature, isn't that the, isn't that the chief end of man? Fear, fear God, isn't, isn't that what the wisdom begins with? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? That's Job. He's someone who fears God and he turns away from evil. So instead of doing evil, he turns away from it. This is a godly man. We even see his godly reactions to his children um, when he offers sacrifices for them out of concern for their spiritual well-being. Uh, and he does this continually. So Job is godly. He's faithful. He keeps doing what he, what he ought to be doing. This is a faithful, godly man. And on top of that, he's incredibly rich. Uh, in a day that measures wealth in, in possessions like sheep and camels, I, I don't have any way of putting that into modern-day English, I guess. Um, we don't really have a value of 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels. Um, but the writer helps us by saying that he was the greatest of all the people of the East. In that case, he's talking about wealth, all right? Job, Job isn't just among the wealthiest people in the world. He's like at the top of the list, and he's incredibly godly, right? This is a unique man. Um, and so we meet, we meet Job, and I think we get to the end of verse number five, and we think that Job is the last person on earth who deserved what's about to happen to him, all right? He's the last guy on earth. He, he's, not, he's not the scum that, that ought to have bad things happen to him. He's rich, and he's godly, and he's faithful to his children, and he loves them, and he cares for them. This is a good man in every respect, and yet, we get a window into God's perspective when we get to verse number 6. And the, and the backstory starts to surprise us at this point because we go, wow, this guy sounds great. And you get to verse number 6, and it says, There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And we get this window into this interaction between God and Satan, all right? Satan is a, a real person, and he actually really can talk to God. And he really was going to and fro up on the earth. He'd been all around it, all right? Isn't this the same thing that Peter says, right, about Satan, our adversary, the devil? He roams to and fro, seeking who can, whom he can devour. And so Satan says, that's what I've been doing. And verse 8, notice who takes the initiative to bring up Job. Notice that it's not Satan, all right? Notice who brings up Job. Verse number eight, and the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? All right, now it's not just the, the narrator in the beginning of chapter one who calls Job blameless and upright. Who, who says that Job is blameless and upright and that he fears God and turns away from evil? I mean, God says that himself about Job. This is, this is God's perception of Job. This is... This is a man who is, doesn't just appear to be godly. He actually is, all right? And, and so God says to Satan, have you, have you considered him? And Satan has a ready answer for God. Satan answers the Lord, and he said, verse number nine, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Satan has an accusation, and his accusation is intended to make Job look bad, and it's intended to make God look bad. All right? Satan is an accuser, and his accusation about Job is simply this. God, Job serves you because it's good for Job. So you want to know why you're getting worship out of Job? It's because it's good for him. All right? Uh, God, um, Satan is the original health, wealth, and prosperity um, kind of religion person, and he says, that's it. 
you, you want to know why, why Job worships you? It's just because life goes so good for him. So he's making Job look bad. And if we think about it, what, what Satan's about to do to suggest, to suggest that Job only worships God because God is good to him, he's saying, uh, I think the best man, the, the one who God says this is the most upright man in the land, I think he's just a fraud. And so if Satan can, if Satan can make this case, then the most godly man who is around in the East at the time, if he's a fraud, then pretty much all of other God's worshipers, they've got to be frauds because they're much less than Job. All right? So Satan's going, if I can target Job, if I can bring him down, I can show that really no one's worshiping, worshiping God out of genuine reasons, and Job certainly isn't. And so really what, Job is, what Satan is doing is not just targeting Job, he's targeting God. Because Job, uh, Satan clearly tells God, God, you protect Job. Notice he puts, the, he puts the weight on God. He says, uh, Satan says, you have put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has. You have blessed the work of his hands and have increased in the land. So Satan says, God, Job is only worshiping you because of what you have done. So actually, this whole worship thing is kind of a scam. Uh, because God, you're the one who set up this whole scenario and, and, and it's not even real. You don't, God, you don't even realize what's actually going on here. It, basically, Satan's saying, God, God, you got duped. Uh, you think you're getting real worship? Sorry, you're not. And it's your own fault. You don't even realize people aren't worshiping you for the right reasons. So Satan is actually making an accusation against God and Job all at the same time. The, the point is, a God that is great enough to worship when it gives you good things is not nearly so great as God who is worth worshiping when he gives you hard things, all right? So Satan's saying, God, you're only as good as the good things you give. But in reality, God is great enough to suffer for. And he looks especially valuable when we don't know why we're suffering and we still worship him and we still trust him. And that's what Job's going to do. And so God responds to Satan. Verse number 12, The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Notice who is ultimately in control of the suffering that's about to happen. God is the one who says, Satan, you may do this, but I will set the limit. And limit is you may not hurt Job. All right? Even here, we are already seeing God is the one in control. All right? Satan is not off to do his own thing. God is limiting what Satan can do to Job. God is in control. Now, didn't God know that, Joseph, that Job was worshiping him purely? I mean, didn't, didn't God know that? Couldn't he have just told Satan, actually, Job is worshiping me for all the right reasons? Couldn't he have just like, told Satan, no, sir, that accusation is not true. Get out of here. Couldn't he have just destroyed Satan in the moment? Couldn't he have done that? Yes, absolutely, God could have done that. But in his wisdom, God has chosen to put his greatness on display through the genuine worship of his people especially in suffering. This is God's wise plan of showing the world that he is great enough to suffer for. God doesn't just tell Satan the way it is and override him. He allows this gut-wrenching testing to prove ultimately that God is right. It is not a sham that we are worshiping God just because he gives us good things. Actually, God is worth worshiping all the time. And God is going to prove throughout the book of Job that he's right, that God is the ultimate God overall. And so, the verses that follow detail suffering beyond anything that we have, we have ever had, 
as in the same day, everything that Job has except for his life and his wife are taken from him. One after another, messengers come and they say the oxen and the donkeys were feeding and Sabaeans came and they took them and they killed all the servants who were there. And, and verse 16 says, while that guy was yet speaking, so he, he's in the act of telling Job bad news, all right? So bad news on top of bad news. Another one came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and all the servants that were there. And I'm the only one that's left. And while that guy was yet speaking, verse 17, I mean, this is, this is the worst series of events that I think I've ever heard happening to anybody. <laughs> uh, all of your possessions are gone. All of your sheep are gone. All of your camels, everything else that makes you wealthy. And then in verse number 18, it turns to something so much more significant than possessions. They come and they says, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people. And seven sons and three daughters in a blink of an eye are all dead. Not just just half the boys and half the girls. Not, Not just, I'm sorry, but your oldest son is dead. Every single child is dead. And the servant says, I alone have escaped to tell you. And then we get to verse number 20. And we see the exemplary response of Job that teaches us all and encourages our hearts. Verse 20, it says, Then Job arose, and he tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground, and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. This is a response because it is of suffering the kind that we have, may have never seen, it is the response the kind that we, we have never seen this kind of response before. This is, this is not a stoical robot responding to this scenario. This is not Job mouthing words of the Lord is given, the Lord is taken away. This is a man who is, who is grieved, he's gripped to his heart. Look what he does. He says he get up and he tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell on the ground. This is a man who is in intense agony. I mean, Job is a real person with real emotions and he just lost everything except for his wife and his own life. In in the matter of time, it took people to tell him that it had happened. He is in agony here. So when, when we read these words that, Naked I came, and naked I went, and the Lord gave, and the Lord take away. This is not just a dry, tearless response from Job. I'll never forget my mom coming and telling me the story. When, when we were in Pennsylvania, my mom was a nurse. She worked in a small hospital, and uh, we were in an Amish community, and, um, and an Amish family had, had a family tragedy. And she said she never forgot. She was in the room and she was with the wife and the wife was just crying. And she, my mom was trying to console her and, and uh, the husband, husband walked into the room and, uh, and she said he said without in, with no ounce of emotion, with no inflection, the Lord gave, the Lord took away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And then he commanded his wife to not cry anymore. 
and it was, it was as cold as could be. Right? That is not Job's response. Job is not a machine here. All right? Job is a man who's gripped by his loss. And yet in that loss, he is clinging to what he knows to be true. And what he tells us in that, in that grip is that God is in control and God is good. And he holds on to that. And he doesn't sin against God. and He doesn't charge God with wrong, but he holds on to what he knows to be true. God, God deserves, friends, God deserves our loyalty despite our pain and our loss. And God looks great before all the eyes of heaven, before anybody who watches, when we worship him through the tears that are streaming down our faces. God is that great and he is that good. Let's look at how Job responds. Look at his first statement. He says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. Job responds as someone who was wounded, but somebody who is humble. He understood the same thing that Paul said in 1 Timothy 6-7. We brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. All right? And Job realizes that in the moment of his loss. Even in the moment of Job's agony, he remembered who he was, which is, I'm somebody who came here with nothing, and I'm somebody who will leave here with nothing. Job is a man who's marked by humility, not a sense of entitlement that all of his possessions were his to cling to. Every, every blessing we have is an undeserved blessing that God could take any time that he wanted to, and he certainly will at death. Everything we have in life is a grace gift, all right? So, so all, the, all the nice cars we drove in here today, the homes that we left, uh, the, everything, that's all a grace gift. We, we didn't deserve any of that. I think it's just that from the moment that our little crying, rubbery, naked selves are born, uh, from that moment on, we're given thing after thing after thing, and it's very possible for us to forget that we don't actually deserve any of it. All right? We, we actually start, we, we just get used to the stuff we have, right? All right? We don't, even, we don't even mean to do it. It's just how it is. Um, we just get used to what we have, and we think we kind of deserve it, uh, or we're entitled to it even down to little things. So for instance, I'm getting ready for this sermon and uh, I walk into the office on Friday morning and I think, hmm, it's a, it's a little warm in here in my office. I go and I fiddle with thermostat and then I go back and I look at it and, it and it's just getting hotter and hotter, all right? And I realize, yeah, the air conditioner is broken. So I don't know what's wrong with it, but it's broken, all right? Well, I mean, I'm used to air conditioning, I, I like my air conditioning, I, and it turns out I like it a whole lot. And I didn't realize how much I liked it until Friday afternoon at about 2 o'clock when I was going, I can't live without air conditioning. I must have my air conditioning. I, I have the sense of, like, I, I deserve air conditioning. Why would I possibly be in an office without air conditioning, right? Well, I, I don't mean to have a sense of entitlement, but it just happens because I'm so used to having things, right? And then I talked to some of you, and I found out that there, there are those of you who actually grew up here in the Valley never having air conditioning. And I just can't imagine how you're still alive. Like, I don't know how you do that, all right? I, I made it till 2 o'clock, and I said, I'm done. It's over. I'm going somewhere else, all right? Uh, you know, never mind the fact that there, there are people here who've grown up without air conditioning, and there are Christians all across the world who don't even know what an air conditioner is. But I'm used to mine, and so I really like it. 
That's, that's kind of how we work, and yet that's not how Job's mind worked. He's, he remembers, hey, I came here naked, and I'm going to leave her without anything. This is who I am. I'm not somebody who deserves. Uh, I'm somebody who is born without and who's going to end without. And so everything that happens in between there, that's God being kind to me. All right? That's Job's perspective, and so that, that changes his response. And so then he says, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. I think that's Job's statement of understanding that God is in control. All right? He says, God is the one who chose to do this. Uh, Job doesn't know about what happened in heaven, but what Job knows is true, that God is the one who's actually in control. Job isn't, Job isn't wrong when he says the Lord gave and the Lord took away, right? I mean, we might say, well, actually, you know, Satan took it away, right? Well, I mean, you've got to remember what we already saw in the backstory. God said you could do this, Satan. Satan is not the one in charge. God is. God says you can do whatever you want to him. All right, so Job is right when he says the Lord gave and the Lord took away, even though you might also be right to say, well, Satan is the one who did it. But Job knows God is in control. He's able to, he's able to say whatever else is going on behind the scenes, what I know is God is overall, and God is in control of this. And Job is right. Job is right. God chose to do this. Job, Job realized that he didn't do anything to deserve losing his possessions and family. All right? Job didn't do anything to deserve having these things taken away from him. And so I think sometimes there's like a sense of injustice, like Job didn't do anything. He's godly, he's upright, he loves his family. He didn't do anything to deserve losing them. But at the same time, we have to remember what Job remembered, which is that he didn't do anything to deserve getting them in the first place either. Right? Job, Job, didn't, Job didn't deserve to have all of his possessions. Those were all gifts from God, and Job understood that. The interesting thing about this is that, is that Job's faith, his confidence that God is in control, notice that it, notice that it doesn't take his agony away. All right? It doesn't remove the pain. In fact, in some ways, Job being confident in God is actually what caused his pain in the first place. Right? I mean, it's because Job was so upright that God pointed him out in the first place. It's because he had such great character that God said to Satan, have you considered him? And that's because good character doesn't necessarily equal good circumstances. And believing in God's sovereignty won't exempt us from suffering. And it doesn't answer every question about suffering. And it doesn't make suffering go away. But it radically changes how we go through it. And so when we say God is in control, that's not just like a little band-aid that you pour on a, on a, on a gaping wound and you go, okay, yeah, but what else is going to make me, you know, I mean, can't you, give me, can't you give me a better answer than that? I mean, God being in control is like bedrock underneath everything else. And, and without that bedrock of knowing that God is in control, uh, we can't see our way through to God's goodness and his kindness and his compassion and his purposes. Without the, without the solid foundation that the Lord is the one who gives and takes away, it is impossible for us to find peace and to find solutions in our suffering. So this is not just a little band-aid. This is crucial foundational stuff it doesn't answer every question. It doesn't answer every question about whatever suffering you're in the middle of. It doesn't answer every question about how we're struggling as a church with what we're in. But it undergirds everything that we think and everything that we do that God is in control. Psalm 115 verse 3 reminds us, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God is in heaven. And he does everything that he pleases. And that makes our God different from any other God. 
or any other concept of God because there isn't any other God that claims to be able to control everything. Even the pagan gods, even gods that Job would have been familiar with in his land of Ur, they were, they, were, they were gods who could be manipulated and changed and who didn't know what was coming down the road. They, were, they weren't gods like the one true God. Not the God who's in control over all. Can I just remind you, I know you know these things, but can I just remind you some things that God is in control over? God is in control over nature. You get to the end of Job, and part of God's answer to Job is, uh, can you do things like make it rain? And can you make it snow? Uh, Can you bring a harvest season? Can you stop the ocean from going past its bounds? He even asked Job, have you ever been down to the depths of the ocean? Have you ever been down there? Uh, He starts pounding Job with all these things that only God can do because only God is in control. He's in control of nature. He's the one that that does all things. Matthew 5.46 uh, makes this point, uh, God makes his son, notice whose son it is, it's God's son, he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And in our day, we've got weathermen and everything else who, who tell us this is what's going to happen, and sometimes I think it's possible for us to forget that God is the one who's actually in control. So it didn't, I mean, in one sense, it didn't, you know, rain because a certain amount of you know, precipitation or, I don't know, whatever happens in clouds happens and, and then it rained and all the right temperature. Well, it rained because God wanted it to rain. Uh, that's the ultimate answer. It rains because God's the one in control of the rain and the sun came up because God wanted the sun to. And it's, you know, snowing somewhere in the world right now because God wants it to. God is the one in control of nature. And in our day of talking about Mother Nature and everything else, all those are direct attacks against God's sovereignty. God is in control. God is in control over animals. Also, at the end of Job, um, God launches into, uh, who, how do you think the animals get their food? Uh, I mean, who gives the lion its food? Who, who takes care of the, of, of the donkeys when they're, when they're having their young? Uh, who, who's doing all those things? Job, are, are you doing all those things? Uh, are you giving the birds their food? No. Job, Job, Job ends up going, no, I'm not doing all that. And God says, well, I am. I'm in control. All right? God is in control over politics. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. God is in control. God is in control of human history. God is the one who started human history, and he's the one who's going to end human history when his son returns. In fact, he told us that about that day or hour, no one knows, or even the angels in heaven, even the son, but only the father Be on guard, be awake, for you don't know when the time will come, but God does because God is in control of that time. God is in control over all things, and God always gets his way. Now, that that doesn't mean that we can't and we don't violate his will that's revealed in Scripture, right? We say God always gets his way, but can't we do things that God doesn't want us to do? Yes, we, we can, and often we do. But Even in that, God always accomplishes his ultimate purposes. It is not God's will that we sin, right? It's not his will that we sin. But God's plans and his control are not threatened even by our sinful actions. God's plans and controls are not dictated by our actions. God's plans are not a slave to us and our foolish and sometimes even sinful ways. God is is bigger than even the genuine, real choices that we make. Or else, in reality, he would be subject to us. So even even as we factor in human responsibility, 
we have to always remember that God is ultimately sovereign. And that's a mystery that we're not getting to the bottom of this morning or ever. But God is ultimately in control. Even of his people, even when they don't do what he told them to do, God is ultimately in control. So mystery that that is, it's still true. And I think, I think it's an encouraging truth to talk about today. Can you imagine how defeating it would be if we had a God whose plans depended on us doing everything right? I mean, think about that. What if, what if God's plans would only work out if, if we never sinned and we did everything the right way? We, we would be a hopeless, despairing bunch of people this morning if that were true. And you know that to be true in your own life. So individually, you can look back on your day and you can say, I know I failed God today. I know I sinned at this point and maybe I said something I shouldn't have and I had a bad attitude. And Well, you can respond to that one or two ways. Uh, you can just be in total despair at the end of your day. I am such a failure. Uh, I, you know, I couldn't do anything right today. I'm so guilty. Or you can run to the gospel. And you can say, God is good to me, not because I deserve it, but because he's good. He's in control of this. He says that he's making me more like Christ, and so I believe it. And I'm not going to look at the circumstances which say, you know, you're a failure. I'm going to say, I take even that, and I take it to the cross, because even in my failure, God is in control. God is, God is overall. I'm not going to ruin his plans to make me more like Christ, even when I'm foolish. So, I think when it comes to this passage in Job, I mean, we always read our Old Testaments as Christian people. So we cannot read the words of the Old Testament except through the cross and the gospel, right? I mean, we're looking back through the cross. And so I think it's entirely natural for us to consider how God is sovereign in the gospel because I don't think we can hear God is sovereign without thinking about the gospel because we're Christian people. And so let's do that for, for, just, for just a minute. Think about how God is sovereign in the gospel. First of all, the gospel is God's plan to save, right? When we talk about good news, Job says the Lord is the one who's in control. Well, the Lord is in control over the gospel. 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown when? He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Christ dying on the cross was God's plan before there was a world. He was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. God is the one who planned the gospel. Acts 2, 22. This is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. This is what he opened his sermon with. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The gospel is God's plan. It was his plans before there was a world. And because he's sovereign and in control, that plan was never in jeopardy. There was never a doubt. There was never a chance that God's salvation plan wasn't going to work out because God is in control. Isaiah 53 tells us that it was the will of God to crush his suffering servant. This is God's plan. Even that Jesus recognized in the garden when he said, not my will, 
but yours be done. When we say God is in control, there is comfort for us this morning that God is in control of the gospel and he planned it all out. I think there is extra comfort for us this morning because God didn't just plan out the gospel, he planned out the gospel for you. The gospel is God's plan to save, but it's his his plan to save you today. Ephesians 1 reminds us of this glorious truth. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God's salvation plan for you, he has also been in control of before the world existed. God's control is a comforting, restful thought for us who are in Christ. The book of Revelation reminds us that that people whose name is written in the book of life it's been there since before the foundation of the world. God is in control, and he's in control of the gospel, and that gospel has saved you. And so we praise him for his control. We don't always know his ways. We don't always know his next step, but we can always know that he is in control. I think if Job ended his statement here, we might wonder what he thought about God's control. If he just said, God gave and God took away, that leaves a huge window. Because Job might be thinking, God gave and God took away, and now I'm about to be really mad at God. But that's not what Job says. Job doesn't leave us wondering if he thinks that God is a cosmic meanie who manipulates us, who gives, gives us things one moment, and then he takes it away the next, and he laughs the whole time. Ha, ha, ha. This is not how Job understands God. Job informs us it's, it's not just that God is in control, It is also that God is good and his name is blessed. And so these two truths come together in a comforting package that they never could if they were separated. If if all we knew was that God is in control, we wouldn't have nearly the comfort that we have also knowing that God is good. Because a God that is in control who isn't good is not much of a comfort to us this morning. But Job says God's in control and it's good. And so he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. I know I've been up here talking for a while, and so maybe we've already forgotten that Job is in the moment of responding to losing everything, and he just said, God is blessed. We are so far removed from Job's pain, and we're, we're, so, we're so far removed from, from his, his experience that I think we read, blessed be the name of the Lord, and we can just forget when he said this. I mean, he said this when his children are dead and his possessions are gone and he's left with nothing. And he says, the Lord gave and the Lord take away and as tears are streaming down his face, he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. It's, it's an amazing stroke of irony that, that Job uses a word that is the exact same word that Satan said he would say. You remember back when, when Satan talked to God and he said, uh, if, you, if you take away his things, he will curse you to your face, right? That word curse is the exact same word for bless, right? It's the same Hebrew word. 
The only difference is what you mean when you say it. And Satan meant that Job would curse God as in, I hate you, I rail against you. And Job uses that same word and he turns it and he says, I'm I'm going to bless God because God is actually good and he is not evil. I was trying to think of some English equivalent and I was kind of coming up dry because we typically don't use words that mean opposite things. Uh, The closest I could come to, and for those of you who grew up with the King James, maybe you're the only ones who are going to actually, you know, get this, but uh, the word cleave, all right? Uh, in, In the old King James, it said that for this reason, a man will leave father and mother and he will cleave to his wife, all right? Well, that word cleave it, it means to come together, all right? It means to be joined so that you're, you're not separable, all right? When I use the word cleave today, I typically think of like a meat cleaver. And I'm going to like chop something and I'm going to split it up, right? So when, we, when I think cleave, I think split it up, all right? In the King James, when you say cleave, it means put it together. That's the closest I could come to as an illustration. It's the same word. It just means different things depending on, on what you're saying, all right? And what Job is saying when he says, I bless God, is he's, he's doing the opposite of what Satan wanted him to do. Instead of cursing God to his face, he is blessing God to his face. Job says, God is good. Blessed is his name. His name is good. His name is praiseworthy. He's not someone I want to attack or accuse or insult. I'm going to bless him. He says that God is good. Our Bibles agree with Job's assessment that God is good. In fact, I think of the story of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter number 10. This, this rich ruler comes to Jesus and he comes in and he says, Good teacher, how can I inherit an eternal life? And you remember what Jesus said to him? Why do you call me good? There is only one who is good and that's God. God is the only one who is good all the time. He's the only one who's good in perfection. Right? It's not just that God is good. God is the only one who's good. Right? Jesus was making a very significant point to this man if you're going to come ask me for eternal life, you better come to me as God because God's the only one who's good. But, but the point is, God is good. God is good. In his character, he is good. But it's not just that. God also does good, all right? Because he has good character, God does good things. From the very beginning of creation, God has done good. So what is stamped all over Genesis chapter 1 is what? God made it. It was evening in the morning, it was the first day, and it was what? It was good, because God did it. God does good things. Psalm 84, 11 tells us, The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. God doesn't hold back good things. He is good, and he does good. And that's not just true in an abstract world. God has done good to us. He's done good to me, and he's done good to you. I've even been thinking of ways that God has done good to us since last week. I think God has done good to us by giving to our pastoral team a unity and an affection and a love that never existed to the extent that it does right now. That's God's goodness. I think God has done good to us as a church body because there has been a response of encouragement and love for one another um, that that is a good response. I I can tell you personally, in this last week, you all have 
encouraged me more through texts and emails and phone calls, and you have said more encouraging words than I can remember in a long time. That's a good response. That's God, that's God doing good to us to make us grateful and trusting and loving one another. It's been good that we have been confessing sin and looking for it in our own lives and our own hearts. That's God doing good even since last Sunday. So God is good and he does good and he's done good to us. And we can trace his goodness from Genesis to Revelation and we can trace his goodness in our own lives. And so I can't help when I think about God's goodness not just run so quickly to God's goodness in the gospel, right? When we think about God being good, I mean, the gospel just dominates our thinking when we think that God is good. Because when we think gospel thoughts, we remember Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's God being good. And this is love, John tells us, 1 John 4.10. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. That's God being good. Not because we loved him, but because he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Ephesians 2 reminds us that God is good when it tells us that we were dead in trespasses and sins. And we followed the course of the world. We followed the prince of the power of the air, even the spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience. And we lived in them in the passions of our flesh and we carried out the desires of our bodies and of our minds. And by nature, we were children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with he loved us, even when we were in that state, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ By grace, we have been saved. This is God's goodness to us, seen most clearly in the good news of Jesus Christ. He raised us up with Jesus and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages, he could show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Because it's by grace that we've been saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one can boast. God has been good to me, and he's been good to you in the gospel. So we can echo with Job, I know that God is in control, and I know that God is good because I've, I, I have seen him be good to me in the gospel. Job was talking about the things he had when he said the Lord gave and the Lord took away. We have something brothers and sisters, we have something that the Lord has given us that he will never take away. And that's himself in the gospel. That's never going anywhere. When we have fixed our confidence in Jesus Christ and his blood has washed away our sins, that is permanent. That is eternal. We are already seated with Christ in the heavenlies right now. There's no undoing that. The Lord has given us salvation and he will not take it away. God is good. His name is blessed. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Again, I understand that this is not the answer to every question and it's not the end of every pain. But this is our solid foundation this morning that God is in control and that God is good. 
And I think we need his grace to lift our eyes past the ouch and, and to put it on him because he's the one who's in control and he's the one who's good. Can I just give you a couple thoughts by way of application as we conclude? A couple so what's for you. First of all, can I just encourage you to do what you're already doing, which is believe that God is in control. Keep believing in a God who's in control. John Piper wrote a um, super moving poem based on Job. It's a book-length poem, but he he starts with a letter, and I just want to share it. It's a little bit of a longer quote, but uh, I hope you'll hear it. Uh, John Piper, he says, Pain and loss are bitter providences. Who has lived long in this world of woe without weeping? Sometimes until the head throbs and there are no more tears to lubricate the convulsing of our amputated love. That's John being super poetic, but I mean, you might know this morning what it means to cry until you can't cry anymore. You know what it is to cry until your head just hurts. This is what he says next. But oh, the folly of trying to lighten the ship of suffering by throwing God's governance overboard. The very thing the tilting ship needs in the storm is the ballast of God's good sovereignty not the unburdening of deep and precious truth. What makes the crush of calamity sufferable is not that God shares our shock, but that his bitter providences are laden with a bounty of love. So God is not shocked when we're on our suffering. He, God doesn't go, wow, I didn't see that coming. But in those bitter providences, there is a bounty of love behind them. A second thought for you by way of practical application, besides continuing to believe that God is in control, can I encourage you, like Job, to verbalize worship? To actually, to actually say with your mouth to one another, blessed be the name of the Lord. It is good for us to actually hear ourselves saying and have somebody else tell us in the middle of our suffering, God is blessed God is good, God is merciful, God is compassionate, God is kind. It is good for us to verbalize that kind of worship to one another. It, it, gives, it gives us as a family a reminder of what's true to hold on to in the middle of trying times. I think that kind of verbalization is what we need when we're in the middle of any kind of suffering. Piper, again, he wrote wrote this. He is not poor nor much enticed who loses everything but Christ. It won't be long before the rod becomes the tender kiss of God. And we can say that in the middle of our suffering. Like, we don't have to wait to the end to say that God is good, right? I mean, we can say, in fact, I think it's even more meaningful when in the middle of suffering, that's when we say, God is good. And I'm going to say it now. I'm not just going to say it when I'm through the end. Right now. My initial response to hard times is, God is good. That's the kind of worship we can verbalize to one another. I encourage you from Hebrews 10 to not forsake your confidence because it has great hope. The writer of Hebrews said, Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. We need to endure in our confidence that God is in control and that God is good. And I realize that sometimes it's a battle for us, especially in our suffering. We battle with ourselves. I I know it's true that God's in control. But I know that God is good. It just doesn't feel like it right now. All right, we battle with our hearts through suffering. 
And so the writer of Hebrews tells us, don't, don't let go. Don't throw away of your confidence. There's great reward in holding on to this through suffering. And I think that when we do that, we will find ultimately that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Because joy in our circumstances will never last because our circumstances will eventually fail us. They always will. So if our joy is found in our circumstances, we'll never have lasting joy. But joy in the Lord always lasts because Jesus will never fail you. God will never fail you. And so the psalmist said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Uh, That's where true strength comes from. It's finding my joy not in myself and not in my surroundings, but fixing it on the Lord. And so can I encourage you this morning? I realize that many of you are in various levels of suffering. And no matter what it is, from, from what you might think is the least to the greatest amount of suffering today, can I, can I just remind you of what I know you know is true? God is in control. And God is good. He is good. And he does good. And he's done good for you.